Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we're already halfway through the first week of March. Where does the time go? Well, as I've said before, and I can say it again, the older we get, the faster time goes by, and we just have to make the most of every day that we um, are fortunate enough to be alive and, and so forth. But uh, here we are again discussing Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, uh, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation. Uh, when I was on the air with you all the other um, night, we uh, discussed um, the beginnings of Part 3, and we are still in Part 3, of course, but now we are going to finish up the second part of uh, Part 1, being that of the forensics aspect, or let alone the forensics piece. And after this podcast session, we will then be moving into, the, into another key element, being uh, the autopsy. So we have a lot to uh, look forward to, and of course I know that might sound strange to say how can we have a lot to look forward to when we're discussing uh, the death of someone who is revered and beloved by so many, not just in the community of uh, Richmond or in Virginia, let alone, but throughout the United States. Well, I, I would agree with that, but at the same time we've got to understand, as I said early on from the get-go, why Mr. Wythe died, and why his death should still matter to us today. And we are getting ever so close to finding out why all of this should still matter years later. I mean, after all, George Wythe did die back in 1806. He has been gone for 215 years. And even though that might seem like a long time, we should still um, honor him for being not just an ardent patriot, but for being a true um, leader, not just in uh, being America's first law professor, but also um, conducting uh, what you call moot uh, court sessions and moot legislative sessions that allowed um, aspiring young men to become successful lawyers um, when entering the actual courtroom to uh, successful politicians who took um, the floor on center stage, whether it was on the state or um, national level. So our uh, leadoff question for this um, final sector of uh, the forensics piece of uh, part three to I Am Murdered is the following. Did doctors James McClurg, James McCall, and doctors William Falshi all know they were looking for arsenic. Yes. They all had a good inclination that perhaps arsenic may have been responsible, may have been the responsible element behind George With, George With's death as well as uh, that of Michael Brown's. But at the same time, um, these men might have some other. Um, determinations or findings up their sleeves. After all, we did learn early on that the three of them were convinced that George Wythe could have contracted cholera. The only problem with that theory is that Mr. Wythe's water always was a good, reliable source. In other words, he had a well, and very few people could afford wells in his day. Those who, who could afford a well were well-to-do people. After all, I think it's probably fair to say everybody who lived in Shaco Hill had access to a well. I mean, that was one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Richmond. That's where the haves or the, or the uh, 
people of prominent status lived, whereas everybody else uh, was living right in the heart of the city along the um, what you call the wharves, uh, the port where the ships were coming in and out. And it's and therefore all of those people who lived in the heart of the city living in overcrowded um, environmental settings or just let alone overcrowded urban settings would not have had the best access to um, good drinking water. So we've got to be realistic, folks, and realize by now that cholera was not the primary uh, cause of Mr. Wythe's death. So after George Wythe himself had proclaimed that he had been poisoned, remember one of the first things he said after he had regained conscious, his conscious, um, because he was... Um, out unconscious for uh, a brief period of time after um, initially in um, after being initially what you call not stabbed physically with a knife but had that stabbing feeling inside his body when the arsenic um, kicked in full throttle he what when he was able to regain consciousness he did go downstairs and one of the first things he told um, Lydia Broadnax and even the doctor who came that day, I'm murdered. In other words, somebody was out to get me. Somebody wanted me dead. So after he had proclaimed that he had been poisoned, the list of witnesses had grown. In other words, people who, ranging from, say, Lydia Broadnax, who witnessed George Wythe's grandnephew uh, flicker a... Um, wrap piece of wrapping paper into the fire below um, the coffee pot where the coffee would have been warmed up on the uh, kettle along the stove rather but you know she's smart enough to to have known or to have uh, come to her senses and realize that hey only one person in the house actually drank coffee that day that was um, still good in other words he didn't succumb to anything, George with Sweeney. So, yes, Lydia, you have Lydia Broadnax's um, report, which she gave to um, to the doctors as well as to Richmond Mayor uh, William Duvall shortly after With had been poisoned. Then you have um, then you have a um, another person who had witnessed, um, or rather it was a slave who witnessed um, George with Sweeney pound white substance with the flat side of an axe. And of course, this uh, particular slave was under the assumption that Sweeney was uh, pounding the substance to make um, rat's bane poison to uh, kill rats, because they know for a fact that Richmond was very well infested with rats, and everybody pretty much needed rat's bane, to um, eliminate the um, rat infestation problem. And then you have a former friend of George with Sweeney who said that Sweeney himself had arsenic and was intent on doing something. That's another red flag right there. And then last but not least, you have Sweeney himself who is uh, inquiring, going around inquiring and asking others where he could obtain rat's bane poison. So all of this right here, folks, should be enough evidence for the medical profession, that is for doctors James McClurg, James McCall, and William Fauci, 
to have some form of good understanding and realize that, hey, look, if George with Sweeney was pounding a white substance with the flat side of an axe, that should be enough uh, evidence, that should be a sign of evidence right there that, that he was deliberately uh, planning a, um, a secretive um, operation. I don't know if operation is the right word, but a secretive plan to um, get rid of a family member whom, um, for one, had already um, cut him out of the inheritance, and two, Sweeney was desperately looking for payback, not just so much from being uh, cut out of the uh, will, but as a means of trying to find some way to pay off gambling debts as well as um, trying to um, continue to maintain his innocence behind the forged checks. It's a lot of information to take in, folks, but you know, but this is um, this is what we've got here so far. We've got some uh, people here who have uh, some credible uh, evidence, and this should be enough evidence. Obviously, the prosecutor, uh, being Mr. Nicholas, will definitely use this as uh, evidence against Sweeney. But who's to say that the defense will um, turn turn around and use um, all of this evidence um, and and portray or let alone uh, take their case in a um, in a different manner that will um, persuade the jury to think differently. Well, I can tell you this much, folks. Um, for those of you who were with me when I did um, John Ad John Adams Under Fire, uh, Dan Abrams's novel, in the 18th century in 1770, uh, when the Boston Massacre trials took place, that was the um, modern-day version of uh, modern-day uh, courtroom television. It could be fair to say that George Wythe's uh, murder trial involving his grandnephew could be the um, equivalent of modern-day um, courtroom TV trial, given that the trial took place in the 19th century, but it does have a lot of um, unique features that would resemble uh, modern-day um, real-life courtroom settings. So, um, Richmond Mayor William Duvall is very convinced himself that George Wythe died by arsenic poisoning. As a means for his grandnephew to control the great-uncle's estate, after all, um, Mr. Wythe had said in his will before being poisoned that should Lydia Broadnax and, um, and Michael Brown die before um, George Wythe Sweeney, that Sweeney himself would be entitled to a greater share of the estate. And if the opposite happened, where Sweeney died before the other two, the other two would be the ones to be in control of their um, fair share entitlement of the estate. Obviously, um, for uh, young George with Sweeney, he was um, wanting to control the great, his great-uncle's estate along with paying gambling debts to covering up forged checks. Remember, folks, uh, George with Sweeney on six occasions took checks to the bank and the bank tellers gave him money all the time. Now, while, yes, they did take the forged checks, the checks that they knew were forged, to the judge, remember, what does that judge do? He just um, gives Mr. Sweeney a verbal reprimand. He says to them, I've got my eyes on him, and if he does it again, he'll receive X, Y, and Z punishments. Did it ever happen? No. And now you've got someone who is very uh, revered and beloved by everyone who's now sadly lost his life at the hands of a um, deranged, 
uh, family member or let alone a black sheep who um, obviously um, did not care about what his great uncle had accomplished and let alone he didn't care how his actions impacted everyone else. So, what, do, what should we uh, know about with uh, regards to poisons? Were poisons, or let alone the act of poisoning people, anything new prior to and around the year 1806, being that same year of George Wythe's death? Well, I can tell you this much, folks. Uh, poisons, or let alone the act of poisoning people, has taken place, dates back to the beginning of... Um, ancient uh, civilizations. However, poisons ranging from arsenic, hemlock, to mercury date back to the writings of the ancient Sumerians around 4500 BC. That's a long time ago, folks. So just keep in mind that poisons themselves, or let alone the act of poisoning uh, someone, is not anything new. Um, in other words, it's not been around for just 200-300 years. This has been around since the beginning of time. The ancient Greeks, believe it or not, were the first to use small amounts of arsenic around 200 B.C., which involved making arsenic trioxide, which was known for dissolving rapidly into food and liquid substances. <laughs> Beverages like coffee, folks. Remember what George Wythe Sweeney did? He, um, he somehow, uh, when he took his um, wrapping paper that had um, arsenic in it, in this case, arsenic trioxide. While Lydia Broadnax had to go tend uh, to a matter, another matter while the coffee was on, what did Sweeney do? He poured, he opened up the lid and poured that, He well, the first thing he did was he poured himself a, a, a cup of coffee. After all, he wants a good cup of coffee, one that's not going to hurt him, but he sure as heck won't mind spilling the um, poison into the whole into the remainder of the coffee to where everyone else who comes in and out of Wythe's home will either die or become so severely uh, paralyzed by the poisoning that it will um, just be a matter of um, of a few hours or a couple of days before they meet their untimely death. So remember, folks, it's arsenic trioxide that's known for dissolving rapidly into foods and liquid substances. I should also point out that around uh, the year 200 B.C. that the ancient Egyptians were used, had used poison found in plants on the banks of the Nile River for medicinal purposes. So we should keep in mind, too, that um, poisons at one time or another were not always used for bad purposes. I learned this some time back, but it, but many years ago, and, and this may have been uh, the case up until the early or mid-20th century, mercury was used to treat a condition known as syphilis. Obviously, that's not the case now, but we should just keep in mind that there was a time where uh, poisonings, where a poison... Um, Poisonous substance, let alone like mercury, was used to treat a um, medical condition uh, known as syphilis. As a matter of fact, uh, syphilis is what got uh, crime boss uh, Al Capone. Uh, most people think Al Capone died in prison in Alcatraz Island, but he actually didn't. He, after he was released from prison, he died uh, from syphilis back in 1947. 
Now, why was arsenic different when it came to eliminating someone else from the picture? All right, let's uh, keep this in mind, folks. What is different? Again, what is different about arsenic when it comes to eliminating someone else from the picture? Well, oftentimes when we think of crimes being committed, we tend to think of um, elements or let alone objects like knives and swords that sometimes get left behind where visible results such as a blood such as blood-stained clothes to open cut wounds are so visible that um, investigators would know that hey John Smith for example died a very vicious death and he would have either died from being uh, stabbed by a knife or um, or shot with a uh, pistol but as for arsenic poisoning it didn't require one to use a pistol, pardon me, a knife, or let alone an axe to finish the job. Instead, arsenic itself is a hidden or let alone color it is a hidden or let alone colorless substance to where once to where once it gets administered into the substance, being the liquid substance, a victim can succumb internally to where a killer or the suspect could never be caught and found guilty of crime committed. So, it's very safe to say, folks, that many years back, if one wanted to commit a crime, but they didn't want to do something that was gruesome, that would leave um, blood marks on their um, clothing, or let alone blood marks on their hands, if you really wanted to get rid of someone... Why not do it in a way that's not, that's, yes, it, it's violent to the uh, victim in terms of how their body is um, innocently attacked by uh, the lethal dose, or let alone the lethal doses of the arsenic itself, but for the uh, perpetrator committing the crime, he or she is looking for an easy way to get rid of someone that doesn't require other um, unnecessary um means of um, achieving their objective. I'm sure many of you are wondering um, how many milligrams of arsenic would be required to accomplish one's objective in murdering someone. I'll give you a hint. The number is between 100 and 130 milligrams. The answer is 125. So you would need roughly 125 milligrams or more of arsenic to achieve an objective. And look, I, I'm not, um, I wouldn't dare um, advocate this or encourage anyone to do it. But we should just keep in mind, folks, that this is how much uh, would be required. It's a scary thought uh, to think that there, that there were people out there who wanted to uh, commit these uh, kinds of atrocities involving um, poisonous substances, but nonetheless, there were you know, sick people during this time who did this stuff. So let me give you all uh, a good um, rundown of what arsenic um, does to someone when it gets into their body. And I know I mentioned um, early on uh, the impacts that uh, Mr. George Wythe uh, felt, as well as Michael Brown and Lydia Broadnecks. 
But here's a better uh, description of what arsenic alone is uh, capable of doing to someone's body internally. Arsenic can traumatize and let alone paralyze one's body system, leading to a horrific death. It can bring about violent diarrhea to vomiting ranging from 30 minutes to multiple hours. There can be severe pains in one's joint as well as a dry tongue, bad sore throat to severe mouth pains, a very debilitated state of feeling where one no longer has control over their own body. And you know, George Wythe even ex experienced uh, shaking in his uh, joints, let alone uncontrolled shaking, um, to where he... Uh, to where it became so painful for him to get up once he had regained his consciousness. And then I could see where a bad sore throat would come about and then severe mouth pains, making it very uncomfortable to, uh, say, chew your food or let alone um, to open your mouth and close it. Fevers alone can reach up to 104 degrees. And most people, on average, usually die within 12 to 36 hours after first experiencing symptoms, the symptoms I mentioned above. However, some people live five to six days after enduring the first initial shocks. Well, folks, what do we know already about George Wythe? How, how long did he survive after he had, had first initially um been traumatized by arsenic. He lingered for two weeks after first being poisoned. He lived or rather survived longer than most average victims of arsenic. And yet George Wythe himself was smart enough, or not just so much smart enough, he had enough, um, what do you call it? He had enough uh, composure, enough um, enough smarts, he had enough sanity in him to realize that, hey, I am murdered. I, somebody's out to kill me. Somebody wants me dead. And he explained that to the doctors. Remember from the previous podcast, uh, he went as far as saying, cut me, open me up, find out what's wrong with me. I often wondered if the doctors had operated on him a little bit sooner, the man might have lived. Who knows? But one thing we do know is that the doctors saw things differently. And I'm going to get to that here soon. You know, doctors, for the most part, do a good job. And while, yes, doctors are not perfect like everyone else, doctors do make mistakes. Sometimes the mistakes aren't great. Because in some instances, it could lead to a doctor being disbarred or losing his, uh, me his or her medical license. On the other hand, we would always like to believe that doctors are willing to learn from their mistakes so that they can become uh, better, uh, better uh, people from within their pr profession and also um, be better the next time they um, deal with a patient who may have had similar, who has similar symptoms or conditions that a previous patient had where the end result was not um, of um, 
beneficial uh, significance, uh, not only to, say, the person who lost his or her life, but to that of the family as well. Did the ancient Greeks and Romans use poisons to execute those whom were uh, found guilty of crimes? Yes, the most famous case involved a Greek philosopher named Socrates, who was the founder of Western philosophy, and he was also the first moral philosopher. Socrates uh, died in the year 399 uh, BC. He was charged with a couple of um, unique uh, crimes. One of them was that he had been accused of corrupting Greek youth. He was found guilty and was forced to drink hemlock, and hours later he died. You know, it's one thing to be found guilty, and, and you know, a judge would say that, you know, you'll be sentenced to die when that time comes, but, you know, I think that's very sad that here Socrates, being a brilliant philosopher for his time, only was found to be guilty only because others did not like the fact that he um, was different, that he was teaching material that, in their eyes, should not be of relevant use. It was uh, inferior. It almost, in some ways, kind of reminds me of how Jesus Christ himself um, died. Of course, Jesus himself died on a cross. But there were plenty of people, uh, most notably the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, even the Jews, who did not like the fact that Jesus you know, for one, did not wear a crown. He did not arrive on a chariot. In many ways, those whom were against Jesus did not see him as their true Messiah or the true prophet that was supposed to have uh, come to them. And I think it's fair to say even um, after Jesus um, was alive, we have seen, history has shown that there have been many other uh, rulers or people in general who did serve um, an inspirational purpose, but yet were taken out by others whom um, saw those individuals as mere as nothing more than um, threats to everyone else's um, uh, well-being, whom um, did not like what that individual himself, him or herself, um, stood for. But we go uh, now to uh, the 15th and 16th centuries. Between that time frame, many European rulers from heads of monarchy states to uh, church-state figures either were targets of poisoning to actual victims. Turns out that um, Queen Elizabeth I, whom uh, succeeded her sister uh, Mary, whom got the nickname Bloody Mary in, in large part because uh, she had prosecuted or persecuted Protestants severely, uh, Queen Mary I obviously tried to restore um, Catholicism, or let alone make the Catholic Church the head, um, the head uh, Church of England, but uh, obviously she was um, ousted, and uh, her sister, her half sister Elizabeth I, um, took reign. But even she herself had multiple um, poison attempts on her life. But thank heavens, uh, she did not die. Uh, she did reign, rule England from uh, 1558 to 1603. She died uh, four years before uh, the English um, established their first settlement in North America, being uh, Jamestown, Virginia, which is uh, no more than just an hour's drive from where I uh, reside. And then you have a fellow named Prince Alexander, who is the son of Russian Tsar Peter the Great. 
He sadly was poisoned in 1782 by political enemies. So it is very fair to say that poisons, or let alone po the act of poisoning people, it's just not confined to um, everyday average Joe people, that poisonings um, do occur high up in the uh, political um, rankings of society, even if it involves um, head leaders of a government, whether it's a, um, a monarch or just let alone um, someone that's like the equivalent of a president. What I do know, and this even applies today to for the President of the United States, and I think it's a, been this way for quite some time, but at one point, things were getting so bad for European um, figures of high-end status that to ensure their safety, to ensure that they would not be the victims of uh, foul play by means of um, death by poisoning, many European figures high-end status went about hiring people known as tasters. These people sampled all the meals and drinks. If the taster remained healthy after 15 minutes, then the person of high status went about eating his or her meal to consuming their beverage. And I do know that uh, for the President of the United States, before he um, has his dinner, or he and his wife have their dinner, or if he's on a uh, trip somewhere in the United States or um, overseas, that uh, someone from within the Secret Service will test the meal to ensure that the meal itself is safe. Because if, that, uh, if Secret Service personnel don't do that, then there is always a likelihood that the uh, commander-in-chief's life could be in uh, some form of danger. Now, uh, did poisonings with arsenic contribute to families turning against one another in America and England throughout the 17th and 18th centuries? Yes. Uh, for example, a husband often used poison to murder his wife just to marry another woman whom he had been having an affair with. It's scary to think, folks, that um, people would go to, those, to that um, level if they were unhappy with their with being married to someone that um, that everyone else thought he or she was happily married to, after all, we must remember that divorces were unheard of in 17th and 18th century uh, times, most notably in uh, colonial America. Um, but if one was not um, happy in their marriage and they wanted an easy way out, well. I hate to say this, but uh, arsenic, um, arsenic poisoning would have been the way to have uh, resolved the problem. And many people were poisoned over land and money inheritance um, matters. Hey, after all, if you don't like the fact that you were cut out of the estate, or let alone uh, you were cut out of your share to um, certain entitlements, say entitlements to a certain portion of land, or let alone um, to certain uh, belongings. Hey, if you didn't like it, well, I guess you had a good um, alternative plan, and that was to uh, take out the person who um, excluded you from having anything to do with the with the family will. Arsenic eventually became arsenic basically became known as inheritance powder. In other, word, in other words, it, it, 
you know, if you were cut out, if you were, if you felt like you'd been cheated out of something, you want an easy way to get revenge? Well, use arsenic. And this way, when the person who got what you didn't get dies, guess what happens? All of a sudden now, you're entitled to that fair share of property or fair share of possessions. So it's a very uh, cruel way of uh, getting back uh, when it comes to revenge. So it's fair to say, folks, that even in uh, colonial days, not everyone lived happily ever after. I think it's fair to say that many people, they were um, on the outside, they looked all friendly and nice people that you'd want to be around. But in private, behind closed doors, they were the um, exact opposite. It's what we would uh, refer to as so close but so far away. Were poisonings prevalent in Virginia where it involved slaves murdering their masters? Yes, it did happen. However, I want all of you to um, know this. From 1740 to 1785, slaves were found guilty in 179 murder trials for poisoning not just white people, or let alone people of a Caucasian uh, race. They were also found guilty of um, poisoning other African Americans, most notably freed slaves and perhaps other enslaved people. So it wasn't just confined folks to um, slaves murdering um, white people, um, people of African American status, whether they were freed slaves or enslaved, were also victims themselves. Long-term illness was often seen as a primary cover-up or excuse for murder involving arsenic. So, for example, a husband wanting to get rid of his wife by means of arsenic could easily concoct a story where the spouse had stomach troubles for extensive time period to where she finally succumbed in the end. Yes, and I think that's that's a very very good logical um, way to um, to say to others. Yes, my um, friend had not been well for some time, and sadly, he or she took a real bad turn for the worse, and um, ultimately lost their life. While many of us can see that as something being tragic, now we have to ask ourselves this: Did in fact it really happen? You know, one could say, well, I saw Sally or Johnny just last week, and they looked fine to me. They may have looked fine to you, but someone else had another plan in mind. What was it, folks? You didn't murder the person, you poisoned them. And it was the perfect solution, sadly, back then, to get rid of people that you did not like, and also to uh, get away with something where uh, nobody could ever link you directly to the crime. We must remember, folks, there was no such thing as DNA testing back then. Um, yes, you know, people were charged with crimes. But when it came to poisoning someone, it was virtually hard to prove. Simply in part because poisonings did not involve 
um, open uh, chest wounds. It did not involve uh, being stabbed 20-some times in the uh, chest. It was a silent killer. However, um, I should point out uh, something very relevant. You know, as the uh, 18th century is coming to an end and we're getting into the 19th century, doctors over in Europe are really starting to um, make um, headways. They're learning a lot of fantastic um, information. And I know for a fact that the doctors in Europe are well ahead of the American doctors in the United States. Well, for one, we know that there are very few medical schools in the United States. At one time, there were only six. But we also know that about 40% or more of all the doctors who uh, practiced medicine in the United States studied overseas in England. Well, and hey, Dr. James McClurg, Dr. James McCaw, Dr. William Fauci, they all studied at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Well, as great of an education as those men got, is it safe to say that all three of these men are always on top of things in terms of learning about the newest findings? I would like to say yes, but the answer is no. After all, those of you who were on the air with me from my previous podcast, we did learn how James McClurg was a, um, I'd like to call him maybe a uh, two-faced uh, person. In other words, he always chided and scolded those who uh, were not willing to learn from their mistakes or learn to um, do things differently in their uh, craft, being that of a doctor. But when it came to Dr. James McClurg uh, being told how to do something differently, he would jump down people's throats. He would lambast them. He would make them you know, feel as if they were dirt. I mean, he had, he had no regards for other doctors. The only people he had regards for were his nephew, Dr. James McCall, and that of Dr. William Fauci. But as for any other doctor who um, encroached on his territory and told him how to do something differently, he would have um, given that uh, other fellow the third degree. You know, yes, I, I think we're all guilty at times of um, not accepting criticism right away, you know, as long as it's constructive. But we should also be reminded that while, yes, you know, we all do have our talents in life, we all bring unique strengths to the forefront of, of our work and in everyday life settings, we also have some limits, and limits aren't bad. But at the same time, if we don't um, recognize our limits and know that, okay, here's where we know what we can achieve and here's what's basically realistic and what's not. But at the same time, we also should know that, okay, if there are others out there who know something that we don't know, then we better sit down and listen to those people. After all, if we don't listen to them, one, we're burning bridges with them, and two, we never know when we might be in a situation based off of what he or she has described to us. And if we didn't learn what they told us, especially if it's a medical-related matter, then how are we going to go about saving the, person's, the person who's um, facing uh, life and death? So by the end of the 18th century, more knowledge about body organs through uh, dissection becomes ever so prevalent. 
Now, in the year 1794, 12 years before George Wythe dies, a Scottish doctor named Dr. John Bell wrote a book on organs titled Engravings Explaining the Anatomy of Bones, Muscles, and Joints. It received major attention to copies being sold in the United States. You know, it's interesting about the um, muscles and joints and bones. You know, yes, George Wythe was poisoned, and the pain he endured went down into his uh, joints. It wasn't confined to just one or two organs of his body. He had, um, the shock he received, it was the full nine yards, but even his joints were not the same after the, after, um, in taking on the initial um, exposure to arsenic. However, let me ask, let me out, let me guys ask you all this question. Did doctors um, McCall, McClurg, and Fauci know anything about the anatomy of bones, muscles, and joints based off of this book that Dr. John Bell from Scotland wrote? No. <laughs> they knew little or nothing about the subject matter. And here they, and here we are, folks. We're, we're, here we have these three men who are supposed to be some of the most brilliant-minded doctors, high-profiled. They went to the, the best university that, in the world at that time, the University of Edinburgh, and yet they know nothing about bones, muscles, the, the anatomy of bones, muscles, and joints. Well, after all, you know, Dr. McClurg is pretty much convinced that um, he doesn't need to read other people's works. He's already made it clear that he knows all there is to know about medicine. He made it clear that um, if you are exposed to a good environment where uh, you breathe in good air and you eat good food, uh, you have access to a well, that you are immune from um, all diseases. And if you um, are destitute and poor, that you are responsible for bringing on the illnesses that impact uh, people of higher-end status. So basically, uh, Dr. McClurg, in my opinion, is a very ignorant man. Yes, he may be smart medically, but in terms of how he, um, in terms of how he uh, values his profession, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, he may be revered. He can be revered all, all day and night by others. But if, but if the rest of the public knew what he was like behind closed doors, they probably would not want to uh, go to him. I wouldn't. While the courtroom audience was ever so convinced that George Wythe and Michael Brown were, in fact, murdered by means of arsenic, po arsenic poisoning, how did Dr. James McClurg approach the situation when taking the stand? Well, this is going to revolve about around, doc, around Michael Brown, uh, George Wythe's uh, protege student. This is what Dr. McClurg, or let alone what doc, uh, an excerpt on uh, what Dr. McClurg said to, um, more than likely to the uh, prosecutor, uh, Mr. Nicholas, Dr. Brown, um, I mean, Dr. McClurg, rather, had said that um, Michael Brown, who was a 16-year-old uh, boy, his stomach was badly inflamed and appeared to be filled with black bile. 
Now, when I get into the autopsy part uh, for our next podcast session, I'm going to uh, talk more about what bile is because it will be mentioned uh, more than once. I can assure you all that. But uh, Dr. McClurg tells, um, tells everyone there that um, Michael Brown, his stomach was badly inflamed and appeared to be filled with black bile, but he did not know exactly what caused the bile itself to emerge. He went as far as telling the jury that the young man's tongue had signs of discoloration. Well, I do believe it could be fair to say that arsenic would cause discoloration, especially around your tongue, especially with that initial contact of the poison itself, given that the poison is um, obviously, for one, it's colorless, it's it's a hidden substance, but once it is uh, dissolved all the way into the uh, coffee, once you consume it, then I could see how it would take hold of your tongue. He did admit that arsenic was possible, but it was not a 100% definitive. Um, he could not clearly 100% say whether or not arsenic was the result or the answer to Michael Brown's death. So if Dr. McClurg cannot give us at this point a 100% answer behind what he is convinced killed Michael Brown, do you think that's going to leave the courtroom um, in a state of shock? Absolutely. It's going to leave the uh, prosecution be um, stunned, but it's also going to give the defense some hope because now the defense knows that if the world's best doctor can't determine right off the top of his head what really caused this person's death being uh, the student's death, then it's fair game now for Dr. McClurg to say the exact opposite behind what may have caused Mr. Whiff to have really died from. Well, we have finished uh, the first part here of part three with the uh, forensics. Now, and as I said earlier, we're gonna when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about the autopsy. So we're going to learn more about what the medical profession thinks, in their eyes, caused Mr. Whiff to die. But let's keep in mind, folks, that uh, cholera is our, should already be ruled out. On the other hand, should we be surprised now that the medical profession themselves could say anything they would want to say to persuade a jury to think differently. Sure, it's fair game now. I was kind of shocked myself when I first read the book why, why Dr. McClurg would have uh, said differently. Of course, here we are, we just talked about Michael Brown, but still, all you know, nobody... Um, Everybody who was a victim of um, George With Sweeney's um, unthinkable act um, knows what it was like to have um, almost escaped uh, near death. I mean, escaped death with the exception of, sadly, Michael Brown. But um, but if I'm in the courtroom, I definitely am uh, very uh, worried about what's going to come next. In other words, okay, if Dr. McClurg can't give us a 100% explanation behind what he thinks is responsible for Michael Brown's death, 
then he there's a very good likelihood that he could deliberately um, fabricate what really did, in fact, uh, cause Mr. Whiff to die. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And uh, thank you again for listening. And if you know of anyone out there who wants to uh, podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you and uh, stay safe. And I look forward to being back on the air again next with you all. Take care.